Hello everybody. I'd just like to acknowledge that we're on the lands of the Durambal people and we uh, acknowledge that they are the custodians past, present and emerging. My name is Stephen Dobson and today I'm talking to... Oh, my name's Dr. Benjamin Jones. I'm a historian here at CQ University. Yeah, and we're going to discuss today and have a conversation about what it means to be a, a historian in the time when we don't always think historians are poring over lots of old dusty books, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Maybe I'm wrong. So, so Ben, so tell me, so who are you? Well, I'm a historian primarily of Australian political history. So my PhD actually looked at colonial Australia and colonial Canada mm. and how they uh, slowly democratised in the 19th century, but my career since then has merged more into a general Australianist. I'm really interested in Australian national identity and particularly, I suppose if I'm known for one thing, it's for republicanism. I'm very interested right back to the 19th century when the first uh, republicans were calling for Australia or for New South Wales to become a republic and how that movement has uh, evolved over the years, in the years leading up to federation. And then of course, in the 1990s, there was the most explicit and immediate uh, example and expression of Australian republicanism. And I suppose I was 17 when that uh, vote happened, so I was just a few months too young actually to take part in it. And maybe that sparked an interest in the Republic and I wanted to know why my fellow citizens uh, voted no on mm. my behalf and what was some of the historical background to the question. And the corollary, I suppose, of that is uh, where Australia might go in the future. Mm, interesting. I'm, I'm just going to unpack this. There was lots of history going on in what you just said there. So um, you wanted to know, the you're a 17 year old, were you interested in history then? Or how did you become interested and make that kind of image into a reality to where you are now? Uh, yes, I definitely was interested in history and always have mm. been. And I suppose some of the advice I got as a, as a young man was to uh, follow your passions and study the things that you genuinely care about. And so when I went to university, it seemed uh, obvious enough that I should uh, major in history, though I did enjoy taking uh, philosophy and, uh, and English and some other mm. topics as well. But of course, when you get to the stage of deciding to do an honours thesis, that's when the general history, as interesting as that is, stops and you really have to focus right in on something. So by this stage, I'm in my early 20s and mm. I, I didn't have a topic and then decided I wanted to do honours. I wanted to do honours and then had to think, well, what, what is a topic I really care about? And, and that got me thinking back about, well, I'm still struck. And so by this stage, it's a few years later about why a country that has such self-confidence, such a sense of self that seems to be this independent, progressive, multicultural nation mm. in the Asia-Pacific would look all the way to Great Britain and decide well, of all of our citizens and all our natural resources and our human resources and our uh, intellectual capacity and creativity 
that we still fall back on this very medieval notion that there is a royal family that, who, who are just mm. entitled to the position of being head of state. Mm. And um, you, you gradually became, let's call it a history teacher, or were you going to be one who was just a professional writing of histories? Well, I mean, it's, it's not the old fashion chronicling what the royals do, obviously. So, so tell us more, what, what is this being a historian? What, what does it mean? That's a, a really deep question. And I'll, I'll start with what it's not. It definitely isn't a just someone with a PhD uh, looking over things in an archive. I'm very careful with my language with my students from the time they do their first assignment in their first year of university. I say, you are a historian, you are practicing history right now and think of yourself as such. Mm -hmm. And I think the profession is so much broader than academic historians. I think there's a wealth of uh, high school teachers, especially who mm -hmm. have incredible value and insight and in particular, the local historical societies. And we've got about eight here in Rockhampton and they're all over the country. And these are the real knowledge keepers of mm. local stories. So I have a really broad interpretation that a historian is really anyone who's passionate about history and who applies the skills of a historian to try and keep these stories alive. So, so do you go into the libraries in all these dusty books and things or is it everything done differently now? Oh, oh, absolutely. And that's mm. that's the fun stuff. Increasingly, of course, in this digital world, uh, we do have mm. more and more online resources and the National Archives uh, gradually uh, digitizing things and Trove is just a national treasure with mm. Uh, millions of pages of digitized uh, newspapers, but of course it, it's still only a fraction of what's there. Mm -hmm. And it just depends what level you're at. Uh, that's fine for small projects. If you're doing mm -hmm. a history PhD though, uh, you certainly can't do it all online. You need to get into the archives and it's, it's like detective work because mm -hmm. it, it was only other humans with certain amount of time and skills who sometimes just throw things in a box or sometimes mm -hmm. people who may possess something and might just say to the archives, look, I know this is important. I don't really know what it is, but you preserve it. And sometimes the description in the National Archives is very vague. Sometimes it's not even accurate. And it really mm -hmm. is only once you open it up that you can see what's in there and start piecing together what its significance is. Uh, it, the, the image you create, it conjures up somebody who's got these old fashioned uh, metal detector machines walking across fields looking for little bits of metal. Um, That's I know a it's great not metaphor. That. <laughs> I know it's not that. So, so the other thing I've noticed, you, you're also quite active as, let's, let me call it a public intellectual. So is that unusual for historians or, or are you unique in, in that part of your profession? I think I've had a really good example set for me by mm. uh, some other historians and I, I, I'm, I might name, I, th I think Frank Bongiorno for instance, um, is really fantastic and really generous in this mm. space. I, there, there was a phase I think in the 70s where it was more usual for historians also to wear this second hat as a public mm. intellectual 
and perhaps it's it's workloads or it's just this desire to want to just have a very small topic that you know a lot about and be the master of it and as more people do PhDs uh, the idea of being a public intellectual probably scares some people off but on my uh, Twitter for for what that's worth. Uh, one of my pinned tweets is that I, I think not just historians, but I think academics in general should think of themselves, especially if they work at a public university and they're paid by the public, that they have a duty to. And it, it may be grandiose to say public intellectual, but at least to be mm. out there writing for the popular press as well, and to be mm. on the radio as much as you can, because I think historians and academics are really well placed not just to talk about things that happened hundreds of years ago, but also mm. to join the dots about how that might be relevant for today. And uh, just as I was speaking, I'm thinking of my colleague and friend, uh, Carolyn Holbrooks, just published a wonderful book called The Lessons of History. I think sometimes historians are too scared to want to say, and here's an application for now. Mm. Uh, it, it's so much safer to say, here's my comprehensive understanding of what did happen. But I think there's a real space for historians and a real need because with th there's always someone who's willing to have a loud voice. Mm. And, and I think if people who really have done research and are passionate about an area are mm. sort of brave enough to put their voice out there and realize, well, there may be some online trolls who attack whatever I say, but I'm mm. going to say it anyway because I think it is for the, for the mm. public good. Fantastic. Uh, thank you, Ben. And... Um I'll invite all the, the young budding historians to read some of your, let's call it your public intellectual pieces, but also to dig into some of this very uh, important debates about what should a nation be, a republic or not. Today I'd like to talk about this great book which um, I've been dipping into. Um, I'll just hold it there. And Australia on the world stage, it's, um, it's interesting, you know, every country will want to write their own history. What is interesting is what is that history on bigger stages or smaller stages? And Ben's put together this great book and we'll focus a little bit on, on his contribution to the book, uh, especially his chapter. Uh, and so I'll start, you know, it's a, a quite a wide ranging book. You're, you're talking from everything from the First Nations um, to this kind of, you call it post-Federation history and foreign relations. And um, you, you could kind of say, is this a book that is just for these hardcore historians? Uh, I, I certainly hope it's not a book just for hardcore historians. Uh, the editors and I have tried to be deliberately uh, interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of Australian histories that follow a general formula of having a small, sometimes even tokenistic mention of First Nations and then colonization, 19th century, federation, Australia in the 20th century, and sort of ticking a, a number of boxes along the way. So this book deliberately brings in international relations experts and historians because 
Uh, one, I think there's just value in general with peering over the disciplinary wall and seeing what your colleagues are up to, but also because I think historians tend to ask different questions and IR scholars ask different questions and they're mm. both valuable. Historians sometimes are too concerned with not making a false analogy and often when people mm. say, oh, well, this thing happening in history now, oh, this is just like back then, historians jump up and down and say, no, I can tell you 10 different <laughs> reasons why, but there may still actually be a lot mm. of validity to the comparison. Mm. And I ask scholars sometimes fall into the trap of anything you know, more than a year old, it's, it's ancient history because the president has changed or in some cases the borders mm. have changed. Whereas historians approach it by saying, yes, but how did we get there? Mm. And we just had a really fruitful uh, unofficial symposium mm. with historians and IR scholars talking together about how Australia got to where it is now and where it might go in the future. And that really is the genesis of the book. I love that. Um, and then you have this lovely opening question, which uh, in a way it, it, it sets the agenda. Uh, when and where is Australia? Unpack that for me. Well, I think these are questions that sometimes get simplified to our detriment. And people like to think, well, when is Australia? Well, obviously that was 1901 or mm. sometimes obviously that was 1788 and that one in particular is problematic mm. because if you asked uh, Philip and his fellow travellers starting a, a convict colony in Sydney uh, are you founding Australia today of course they, they would have said no and a question mm. I throw to my students often is when did Australia become independent and sometimes they say well at Federation surely I'm like, well no, it's more complicated because mm. Britain still oversaw uh, the uh, foreign affairs. And they say, well, maybe the Statute of Westminster, but then why did Australia feel obliged to follow British directions and to enter wars that Britain did? And there are all these different dates. And the uncomfortable truth is mm. there isn't really one set point when Australia becomes Australia. But that's all just talking about modern history. We also go back thousands of years before uh, colonization in the book as well and ancient Australia has an incredible history mm. as well and we've got a wonderful Wiradjuri uh, author Lawrence uh, Bamblin who talks a bit about that and so and and where is Australia is one where people may think well that's obvious as well but again people conceptualized Australia really as just being the southeast corner and New Zealand was probably part of that conception of Australia mm for most of the 19th century. And so if, if there's a point in this exercise, it's pushing against this idea that there's a teleological view of Australian history, that it's just set, here's the clean starting point mm. and the evolution that a lot of the events that happened were by chance, by random. Australia could have ended up uh, having multiple European uh, colonisers. It could have not been colonised mm. at all. There are all sorts of different Australias that were possible. And the one that we have isn't predetermined. It's, uh, it's the result of various forces of history, but also where Australia may go in the future isn't set either. And it's something that uh, those who care about the future of Australia should think about deeply because it is something we can change mm. and we can shape. I also think that, that, that a key point in this book, and that speaks to your chapter, is about this whole idea of foreign relations. 
And um, you talk about it, it, that also is something which changes and everything. So talk me through, you know, did Australia suddenly have foreign relations as something? I mean, what, what, what is the evidence that you could fix that in a certain period that we gradually formed that? Well, I think overwhelmingly, uh, certainly IR scholars tend to only think of when Australia first started sending its own diplomats to mm -hmm. uh, to Washington and London and to, to Tokyo and various other places. But uh, we, we mentioned in the introduction that the archaeological record, we are learning more and more every year about how vast Australia's ancient history is mm -hmm. and how much Indigenous and First Nations foreign relations mm. were going on and just one example we use in the introduction is that there are pottery shards off Lizard Island uh, which is uh, well over 30 kilometers off the coast of Queensland and so there were incredible sea voyages going on well before uh, European mm. seafaring managed to get here. It's already well known that the First Nations of Northern Arnhem Land, Arnhem Land uh, had trade with the Macassans in what's now Indonesia. So Lawrence Bamblett's chapter unpacks mm. some of that, but it also suggests maybe there's still something we could learn about First Nations best mm. practice. And uh, another Wiradjuri author in the book, James Blackwell, is really a pioneer in this space of First Nations foreign relation. It's a question which I don't think many Australians have thought about, what a First Nations opinion mm. or perspective. And it throws in interesting questions, like when Australia today sends trade delegations should we, as a matter of protocol, have a First Nations person w with them and to show the cultural practices of Australia's First Nations? It, it reminds me of an analogy of uh, when the Renaissance came, uh, suddenly Europe woke up to the idea that they actually had to train people who could actually have conversations because they were doing trade. And before that, it implies people didn't train in this. So there's a whole whole space here of how do you learn about what is acceptable international relations. And, and I think that puts Australia very much in that space of we want to interact with other cultures and that requires a change in our mindset. Which brings me to the next question is you talk here about a, a change almost in national identity, how we think of ourselves. And you, you talk about an old Australia and a new Australia in the second half of the 20th century. I, is this some kind of thinking differently about ourselves? And how does that play in with your thoughts? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I suggest it is such a dramatic shift, you almost could think of it as two different countries. Mm. Every nation between 1901 and 2001 is different, of course, because many, uh, many changes uh, happened over that century. And of course, many nations uh, didn't exist until the middle of the 20th century. But Australia is, is remarkable in the sense that the national identity itself changed from mm. British Australian to just being Australian. And uh, the historian Keith Hancock mm. put it beautifully in the 30s, which is still when Australia had this uh, British Australian identity, he said it's unusual um, to be in love with two soils because patriotism is usually a jealous mistress but that mm. seems to be what has happened in Australia but mm. then when you think about it from federation 
you have a nation of people predominantly identifying as British Australian, and so they're going to put a constitution together that reflects that. They're going to create a flag that reflects that. They're going to put all of these uh, symbols, statues, the names of roads and things. And then in the 20th, uh, second half of the 20th century, when Australian national identity had this complete evolution to now just see Britain as an ally as a country we are close with, but not as mm. uh, we don't think of ourselves as British unless we happen to you know, actually be British as well. The question is, well, do we go back to the constitution then? Do we go mm. back and look at the flag and some of these symbols? And do mm. we want to have uh, national symbols that better reflect who we are now, not who we were in 1901? You've got this lovely phrase, which I think um, s summons up some of these kind of dilemmas and challenge about who we are and who we identify with. And um, it, it goes along the lines of the language of Britishness is gone, but the privileging of Britishness remains. What does that mean? I think what I'm trying to get across there is that no Australian politician would say I'm British to the bootstraps as our most mm. successful Prime Minister Bob Menzies said. But there still is something in our psyche, or at least in some of us, mm. when people suggest something like maybe we shouldn't have a British flag in the position of honour in our flag that makes them just halt for a minute. And mm. sometimes because that language of singing rule Britannia and having Empire Day is gone, they don't quite know how to articulate why they're opposed to that or why they're opposed to mm. cutting the final tie with the British monarchy. But there's just this sense that even if we're multicultural, that Britain is still the first of all the other immigrant groups to come here. And that's something uh, the book challenges, or I mm. hope challenges and something uh, I hope people consider, I suppose especially people who might instinctively think, well, I like things the way they are, to think about, mm. well, why is that? Is it just because that's the tradition I grew up with and mm. that is the Australia of 1901, but is that the Australia I want to see in, you know, for the next hundred years? So, so if you were looking at your chapter and the book as a whole, um, w would you be challenging or prompting um, new debates about the future direction of Australia? Well, I, I hope so. I mean, that's a lofty mm. goal and I don't want to presume mm. it for myself. But certainly with my chapter, if it's titled from uh, it's titled to almost republic. And that's sort of where Australia left itself in 1999 with a vote where even though it failed, 45 percent of people said they wanted to become a republic then, which at least means that the British royal family is no longer a unifying, uh, just universally loved. There's significant dissent and a mm. lot of uh, polls before and since then have said a majority of Australians, uh, particularly uh, now with King Charles, uh, would prefer Australia to become a republic. So uh, I certainly don't make a case for a republic uh, in that chapter. Mm. I try to as uh, honestly and objectively as I can chart the national mood in that second half of the century. But it, if, if it ends with people or readers thinking, well, what's the next step now, then, then I'll be satisfied with that. Thank you. I think that's a, an excellent, excellent uh, introduction to, uh, let's call it some of the opportunities of where the nation goes, but also about the identities we create. Thank you very much, Ben.